I'm at the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This is the 32nd annual CCSAD hosted by C4 Events. This is where I get my hands on the experts and the professionals in the field of addiction and mental health disorders. So you can have more help, more support, more connection to the information that is going to bring your family back from the brink of destruction, from these destructive habits, these destructive patterns. I'm Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Welcome to the show this morning. Um, you know, the, the biggest gift of coming to these conferences and I've said this before, I said this when I was in London, in, in Finland, it is the people I get to meet, the people who I get to be around. And I was walking down the halls, we were closing up shop yesterday, and I, I was told through the grapevine that someone was here. And I'm not going to say his name yet, but what a lot of people don't know is that uh, he's one of the reasons why I transitioned from picking up kids and taking them to meetings on Friday nights in Boulder, Colorado, to actually running a facility was watching him on TV with these families, these addicts, these alcoholics, who somewhere in there he was able to find the piece of them that wanted to change and magnify it and amplify it and bring that piece out so that they finally said, okay, whatever, let's do this. And then you jump and then you go. So we're talking about interventions and I'm, I'm not just talking to a guy who we've all seen on TV, but I'm talking about a guy who has taken the concept of intervention and his success with intervention. And now he trains interventionist and he trains it on a massive scale. I'm talking with Ken Seeley, who was the star of A&E's intervention. He's the author of the book, Face It or Fix It, Face It and Fix It, Face It and Fix It. Um, Ken Seeley, I got to meet you face to face yesterday. I, I am a gushing fanboy. So thank you so much for being on Beyond Risk and Back and welcome to the show. Whoops, hang on a second, say that again. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for and, having and me. Eric, thank you for being here with him. Yeah, great to be here. Thank o you. Okay. I, so so uh so I gotta start at the beginning. Okay. <laughs> like like all the way back. How did you go from running interventions to running interventions on a show? What was the transition piece? Um, well, I was doing it for um God, probably three years doing okay. interventions back to back, about three or four a week. And then um, I heard there was a show coming out, so I called them up and asked them to interview me. And I was like, not knowing what I'm doing, I just knew I loved what I did. I had a passion for it. I loved um, watching the light turn on, like you said. Yeah. That shift happening. And once I got, you know, used to seeing that happening, I was, it was a drive. I was like, I got, I need more of this. It was like my new drug of choice. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and then I heard there was a show being picked up and I just contacted him and I said, oh, you have to interview me. I, 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 I would love to be a part of this show. And they did a first season without me cause they needed a female. They already had Jeff. Right. And then they found candy. And then he said, if we, the uh, creator, Sam Mettler said, if we get picked up for another year, um, I'll interview you. And I guess they interviewed like 30 or 40 people and picked me. 
So, Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, since then, since the show, uh, because of the the connection that people and the media have had to you, you're you're on CNN, you're on Fox, you're on CBS, ABC, you're you're on all these shows. You come across you 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 portray you are the expert that these people go to for interventions. Why is it just your success rate, or do you have a style you feel is unique to yourself? What is it about Ken's interventions that that make people seek you out? all over the world. I think the difference is, is I don't believe in treatment being for the addict. You know, the person that's suffering from the disease of addiction, I don't believe it's treatment for them. I believe it's treatment for the family. So we get the whole family system together and everybody gets a role. Everybody gets what we like to call a treatment plan. So when a family member comes together, they're always saying, oh, this is the one that has the The problem. identified patient. <laughs> exactly. The identified, this is the one that has the problem. But each and every one of them is taking a role on them continuing to use. And I think the magic is when you turn on the light bulb, for them to see what their role has been, either supporting re addiction or supporting recovery. And you see it so much on the show, the families driving them down to get their drugs, you know, because they don't want them to act out. The families giving them money, the families, there's little pieces that they're doing that they don't even realize what they're doing. Yeah, nobody want, no parent wants to hear the word enabling, that they've no. been enabling their child and no. stuff. But there is a level of passive aggressive enablement that takes place. Um, and I gotta ask, cause I've done a few shows on enabling just because it's such yeah. an uncomfortable topic. In the family, who's the biggest enabler generally? Who do you find being the one who's, this is the one who's really supporting the addict's bad habits? Well, when you, when you do a genogram and you break down the family system, and a genogram is like a family tree, for people that don't know what that is. It's a family tree, but you're looking for all the family members that may have this addiction issue. The, the family trauma tree. <laughs> exactly, there you go. <laughs> and that family trauma tree, you're looking for where other addictions, eating disorders, sex or love addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, where does that other family, and codependency is another form of an addiction. Right. So when that person doesn't have that loved one to take care of, then they're detoxing from their drug of choice. So that's the way to look at it where they see like, you know, I love it because you have a family with a bunch of siblings and there's one that's suffering. And I always look at it as there's one with a broken wing as a bird. You have a, a, right. you know, a, a bunch of birds there. One of all the other ones could get up and, you know, no failure to launch, as they say. There's one with a broken wing and that one needs more attention. And the family gives that one the more attention. But the enabling family, the one that's enabling the most that one takes it on as a job. That's their new job. And so I get them in touch with why is that, why do they have to take it to that level where it becomes their job? Hmm. And what is it within them that they don't love themselves enough that they need to take care of somebody in order to feel wanted or loved they're compensating for a parent that didn't take care of them as a youth they yep. felt abandoned so this is their drug now as someone who's suffering yes there's some trauma within that person that they don't even see and it's hard to, i don't want to really get 
you know, it's so deep that you really have to do a pre-intervention with a family. It takes hours to do that with a family. So I don't want, you know, I just want them to be aware that there is something else going on. And what we do differently is we unravel the whole family systems trauma. And then we take that and then we give everybody a treatment plan. It seems, and this seems like such a catch 22 because you got one of your kids, yeah. you know, this, this kid's getting B pluses and A's and is on the sports team yep. and this kid's playing music and it's getting C's and C plus. And then you got one kid who's smoking pot every day. They're sneaking out at night. So not only does the parent's attention go there and the other children are the good children. And we all, we all know what happens to the good child, right? Yep. They have their own series of anxiety issues that come on down having to play the good role, but and, and it's not just this physical thing where the physical attention's going one place. Suddenly, there there's a psychic attention because the dad is is talking to his mom and is saying, yeah, yeah, you know, my my middle son, he's he's messing up. And the mom tells the other brother, who then, when the kids ask what's going on with cousin so and so, then those kids know, and they get together for family Thanksgiving, and everybody's tiptoeing around this kid who's already now the this whole extended family is satelliting. Yep, but we're not supposed to give them special treatment or treat them differently or make them the black sheep of the family because yep. that actually makes the problems work how do you navigate this because it's a it's a it feeds itself it, that that's exactly it it's all feeding itself and if you could unravel the whole dynamics of that family system you're able to get a family into recovery and that's what i think we do different the we family. don't bring the addict and get them into recovery right. we get that whole system we always like to say who would be the first three rows of a wedding who are those people that love you the <laughs> that's most brilliant and that's your family it could be you know family of choice it could be blood family whoever those people are i want to bring them together and work as a team to create a family of recovery you said a second ago that, you know, getting into this with a family, because you're, you're unraveling deep stuff. And I suddenly, while you were talking, I had this vision of you walking into somebody's house and started pulling electrical cords out of the wall. Because when the moment you get the mom to realize that she's doing this for her son because her dad didn't do it for her. Yep. And she's like, oh, well, I'd like that's not healthy. And suddenly you've unplugged an energetic like current yes and then you get dad and he, all he does is get angry at the kid and he goes off to work and you come back it's like you actually have to engage you two need to go on a hunting trip or go skiing together like some you unplugged a cord there so so now how long does something like that take how long are you going to spend on a single person's intervention so the pre-intervention is the first day you know that takes you know four to eight hours depending on how how easy it is to get through to the family because some families okay, yeah. are in so much devastation over this where I've seen family members get divorced. Parents get divorced over not agreeing how to handle the situation with their child. Sure. So you see that all the time. So if there's that kind of conflict that's going on, that's going to take a lot longer to kind of get them right. on the same page and point out. And again, if it's the dad that's enabling it's not that dad's a bad person and mom's a bad person and mom doesn't care. It's that opening up the eyes for dad to show him why. Where was it that you didn't get your needs met that you're doing this for your child? 
where was it? And once we identify that and say, okay, some, some family members just need to go to meetings. Some people just need to read some good books, you know, get some good therapist involved. So everybody's different. So figuring out what their recovery plan is going to look like, then what we do, once we identify that and figure out what that is, then we focus on the other identified person. And we don't focus on what we're, we, we're going to, um, what's going to happen to them if they're going to choose to go to recovery or not. Right, right. We focus on, okay, we're going to make changes and then they get to do whatever they want. But the changes that they make are going to be the changes that are going to motivate them to want to change and join the rest of the family. Okay, let's get to some of the meat and potatoes past this this day one, because prior to day one, the family has decided that they need an intervention. Yes. Intervention is a popular uh, uh, concept and term in recovery. Yeah. Not everybody can afford it. Not everybody can bring in an interventionist. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, 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 quite frankly, a cheap interventionist will charge about three grand. Yep. And if a family's looking at a residential program for their child, they're committing a lot financially mm -hmm. that extra three grand cash because insurance isn't going to pay for this. Although you've done some work where insurance is starting to pay attention to the intervention process. Yes. Yes. So talk now, about that. Uh, about 2015, I think it was. So Eric's here with me too. So, uh, you know, 2015, we went to joint commission because they didn't have anything for case managers for aftercare and they didn't have anything for interventions. And we asked them to work on creating something because they have it on the medical side, but they don't have it on the behavioral health side. So they came up with some, you know, policy and procedures and created a new box that you could check for a joint commission. Then what we did is we went to DC and we talked to some of the payers and said, hey, you're paying for this on the medical side. How do you pay for this on the behavioral health? So now they're paying some policies have it written in their policy that intervention and case management are covered you know, um, what is service. it? Service within their policy. Eric, grab the mic for a second. I mean, we go to <laughs> podcasters and, and TV stars. We love our voice, but you're not stuffed back in a quarter. Ken has been saying we, what's been your role in this work? Yeah. So I work, uh, with Ken, uh, and um, my title is CEO, uh, but I've also, uh, recently completed my master's in social work. Okay. So, um, one of the things we felt has been important uh, in offering these services, because as, as Ken's illustrated so well, is, uh, you know, the families come and they're in such a shattered state from years and years of trying to figure this out. And no family's born with a handbook that says how to treat your addicted loved one. And no and no loved one ever said, when, when we get married, I just want you to know, I'm going to become an addict and, you know, there's going to be a thing. So you're signing on uh, for that too. A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the things you, you said that I loved as a visual was, you know, we unplug the dysfunctional behavior, that electric cord. But the, the important thing too is that we follow that up and plug something positive back nice. in. Okay, sure. Um, you know, we can we can when we take a loved one out of the house for an intervention, that codependent person is is left in withdrawal. They're like detoxing from wow. their experience. So it's really important that we understand that the whole family, like Ken was saying, needs a treatment plan. So one of the, the goals that we have is to 
you know, a lot of people think intervention is like, oh, we're going to jump in the house, we're going to scream and yell at you, and we're going to drag you out. And, well, I also, there, there's, there's the, the caricature of everybody's going to read a letter of what we, what we think. Yeah. And I've seen that work wonders, but that's just the image. So what's different again? Let's, let's, let's fill in these, these blanks. Yeah, and, and I think I, that's a big question. So we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll tackle it because, you know, Ken mentioned a pre-intervention process, which can be, you know, four to eight hours. Right. But prior to that pre-intervention process, there's a whole assessment process going on where we're trying to understand the family system. Where is the dysfunction? How is it manifesting? What are the ways in which we're going to need to intervene? So even before we even get on site to do that meeting, there's been multiple conversations, generally over the phone, uh, with the key members of the family to kind of identify what is the work we're going to need to do to prepare them to start that work um, and then plug into that work. And like Ken said, the, the intervention to us is is kind of secondary. It's the second piece. The oh. pre-intervention is really our focus. So that's uh, amazing. And I want I want parents to really hear that, that the intervention itself is secondary to what needs to take place. And you guys are very much saying that this first part is about the whole system, not the identified patient, not the black sheep, not the right. one who's struggling, the family struggling. We have to address the family issues. Yep. Okay. A hundred percent. You know, I'm very proud of my intervention track record, you know, getting people into treatment. That's great. I'm really proud of that. But what's really meaningful to me is mm -hmm. does that shit system shift into recovery and can they maintain that over time? Because you've probably seen it with your kids, the families relapse long before the kids do. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> well, like, look, here's here's the way we say it. Because we have, I, I pride myself at our program having one of the biggest family intervention components of a residential program for children. I have found one that has a bigger one. It's in Malibu. It's like three hundred thousand dollars, and the family goes away for ninety days. And I'm yeah. like, I who can do that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, what what we tell the parents is like. First of all, your kid's not broken. The system's broken. Mm -hmm. And you guys are responsible for addressing the system. Second, we're going to bring your kid into this facility. They're going to learn a new language. They're going to learn a new culture. If you guys are at home speaking French, we're going to teach them Spanish. Yep. And when we send them back home, you better be able to speak Spanish or everybody's going to go back to French. Yep. And so the, so the whole family doesn't. So my question is, are you guys good enough to tell in this pre-intervention piece how long this is going to work and set the family up for success. Can you walk in and go, Oh, this is a big mess. You people, before we do an invention, I want three months of therapy or, or do you have a, a bigger team that's a, that, that you've got 10 people sounding off on this? What's, what's that strategy look like? Yeah. I mean, I, I think a, a, an important distinction is that intervention isn't treatment. Like an intervention is wow. not treatment. So, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, I'm a therapist, um, and I perform interventions. And my role as a therapist is very different than as an interventionist. So the intervention is really designed to set up at least a minimum year recovery plan for everyone in that family system. You know, we know that longer over time with accountability uh, increases uh, outcomes. Right. You know, if you can hold that system accountable longer over time. And so the, we think of the intervention as the identification stage of the process. Um, how are we going to identify what's needed? How are we going to identify who needs it? And how are we going to implement it for the family? And then, yeah, we have a team. We partner with treatment centers all the time to make sure that they're treating the identified person, that they have a family component. And then we work concurrently with the families to really identify and then hold them accountable 
to doing what they're supposed to do because that's really the hard part. Once that kid goes off to treatment, you take right. that deep breath and they're like, <laughs> okay, fix them, you know? Right. And like you said, I love that you guys do that, that, you know, we're not fixing him, we're fixing the system. And I think that's a slow approach for the industry. And I think a lot, I think that's where a lot of the misconceptions about intervention come in is you're going to, you're going to come in here and save my kid and take him away and everything's going to be better. And it's, it's never the case. It's never that simple. A lot of educational consultants and interventionists, one of the big changes in the industry was that they started following a long, you know, on a walkthrough and a handhold through the entire treatment process of the practicing addict. Um, is this, is this also part of your stuff? And why is that important? Why isn't the interventionist job just to come in and get that thing to happen? Why do they got to hang on? Yeah, so what we did is we um, went to Brining Institute, okay. who's been credentialing behavioral health for over 30 years now, and created a credential for case managers and interventionists. Because we believe if you're going to be an interventionist, you need to know the importance of not only following up for the client while they are in treatment, but for a year after treatment. Give a layman's definition for case management for my parents. So a, a case manager, I hate the word case management, but that's what the insurance right. pays for is case <laughs> management. <laughs> you know, so we have to call it what the insurance we bill under. Right, right. But really, I look at it as, you know, a trainer at the gym. So if you want a goal to lose weight and to become better fit, like you are, right? And you want to reach that goal. And you're saying, okay, I, I want to reach that goal within a year. And I go to the gym by myself, you know, uh, left to my own devices. I'm going to get up and I'm going to say, oh, that alarm. Ah, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't really, snooze. you know. Boom. I'll go tomorrow. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll go to, you know what? Maybe not this week, you know. And it keeps getting further and further out. Right, right. And it's the same thing we do. It's human nature with our recovery. So the family members, we put a family treatment team to plan together. And, oh, I didn't get to a meeting this week. And, oh, I, I really didn't get, I don't like that sponsor. And they, you know, life gets busy. And we understand that and we respect that. So this person is like a trainer at the gym that's going to help you reach your goal. Right. Not the trainer's goal. It's your goal that you want to reach, but we want to help you stay on track to reach your goal. Well, and like what Eric was just saying about accountability, like that's such a major component of recovery is, is you're doing it for you. Ultimately, this is yep. all, a, I, it, it amazes me how arrogant and self-centered addicts are. And then when they recover, they're arrogant and centered in themselves. Yep. Like it's, it's a little bit healthier. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's get back to some of the meat and potatoes on, on some, some how to's. All right. Okay. A parent is, a parent is starting to recognize that the whole family's playing a role in this. Yep. They decide they need to do an intervention that maybe they're going to call in Auntie Sue, Uncle Bob, and, and, and some cousins and people yep. who really love this kiddo. What do they do? How do, how, do they, how do they rock through this one? Is there stuff on the internet? Can they pull stuff up your, your website? Like, how do they do, an, how do you do an intervention? Well, like you said, it, it's always better to have a professional in the room. Of course because it is. If, if, if we totally get that everybody doesn't have the money. Yeah. So we say, you know, give us a call or give someone a call and see if their insurance will cover for, for it. 
or you know i always love what eric says uh, eric did, does this all the time is he'll say okay what i want you to do is i want you to read this book and when you're done reading the book come to me and then i will guide you for free doesn't cost you anything for free on how to do this intervention and how many people call you I've, After reading I, the book? Yeah, well, I, I don't know that they get to the book. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's natural to want to, uh, to have someone hold your hand. Um, but just, you know, I, t I send that to a lot of families, and I've had one call over the years. I mean, I, I probably one. sent that out to about 150 different families. Isn't like, this amazing? They're terrified their child, their loved one is going to die. Yep. And they struggle to read a book yeah. to help save the life. What's the book? Uh, there's a couple of books we recommend. Ken's is a good book, uh, Face It and Fix It. Um, we love Candy's book, When Enough is Enough, um, and Love First by Jeff and Deborah J. They're kind of basically books on how to do interventions on your own. Um, and and the, the hard thing is, is that families, you know, I, I learned a hard lesson that you don't intervene on your own family. Um, so wow. being the person who's connected emotionally to the identified patient and leading the intervention can be very challenging. So we always recommend, you know, if you're a member of a church, uh, if you have a therapist, although many therapists aren't qualified to do interventions, um, if you have a local 12-step community, someone else from Al-Anon who's been through what you're doing, who knows your family system, to have someone who can be kind of the, the leader and the director. And that's, that's basically what every intervention needs is the director to help rehearse everyone to put them in the spots where they'll be successful and then to keep the the effort on track because as we know when you start an intervention a lot of times you get i can't believe you did this to me if you had just asked me i would have gone to treatment meanwhile the families have asked the person seven or eight yeah, right times. right of course so that ability to tell the family let's not react you know let's just settle down to have someone who isn't going to be escalated by that behavior in the room is really important I have to tell a story. My yeah. my very first intervention um, was uh, with a with a heroin addict, and he had locked himself in an apartment. We'd been pounding on the doors. Arizona, 110 degrees outside. I'd been waiting outside for four hours, and I had finally had enough. And I booted in the front door. <laughs> it didn't get better from there yeah. <laughs> until uh, about an hour later of reeling all that energy back in. Yeah. And I guess I, I, I use, and, and he's very successful. Uh, we're, we have a great friendship now. Um, and and I, I put out that story because it's going to go bad, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and particularly for people who are doing it on their own, uh, you know, the, the identified person who's using, you know, he knows how to push the buttons on his parents, his brothers, his sisters. They are the best he installed them. Yeah. <laughs> he installed them. That's our good friend. He's John the electrician. Southworth. Yeah, he, he, he said that. So, you know, and, and the, the thing we see all the time is those patterns develop and they only know the response that they've been trained to give. I can't, you know, the, the IP is going to give their response and the family is almost always going to default to their natural response, which is either get into it or completely shut down, neither of which is effective when you're managing an intervention. So you have to be able to take that deep breath to remain calm and to stay on track. And the, what you're doing is you're showing your loved one a very different response and a different behavior. And that's what ultimately gets their attention. Whoa, wait a second. Mom and dad are different now. They're not, they're not, 
either enabling me by giving me money when I pout and scream and punch holes in windows, or they're not completely shut off and shut down and ignoring me. They're, they're actually having a normal response to my outrageous behavior that I've, that I've been doing to get what I need, which is my drug. And that's the beginning of that shift. And like you said, that initial escalation happens at every intervention. And it's just a matter of getting through that initial resistance. And then you get to the point where you can help someone and you can sit with them and you can talk to them and you can help motivate them to change. So, you know, back to your initial question is what do you do? You, if you can get someone to partner with you who's outside the family system, if you can read up a little bit on how an intervention works, prepare, we use the letter format uh, we because we like that it de-escalates the tension in the room. And that's everybody reading a letter of what they love about the person, why they're worried, what should go in the letter but besides I love you and I'm terrified. Yeah, and, and I think I think when we put things that they love about them, it makes that person remember that right. they have a relationship. Right, right. Families will always discount he doesn't care what I say because everything that I've said has had no impact. Up right. To this and, point. and when they're remembering that it's engaging the prefrontal cortex, exactly. we come out of survival and mode, engaging the heart, right. too. you know, right. so they, they they start to feel that connection. And then it's really important that we don't shame or guilt the person. Uh, you know, a lot of people's their next inclination is to say, and I can't believe that you got arrested. But what we <sighs> teach the families to say is, you know, it breaks my heart to see the challenges that you're going through because of your use. When the police called me and said you were arrested, as a mom, it broke my heart to see that. And all I wanted to do was help you and take you into my arms. And that's a different way of relating to the, what parents have done up to that point. It seems at this point, you know, you, you've read some letters and stuff like that, that, that you know, the, the, the pre-contemplation phase, we're, we're going to move through these phases yep. fast until they get into, okay, I'll go. But we're not there yet. People think we're going to read the letters, they'll break down, willingly get in the car. It doesn't happen that. There's a negotiation phase that starts up. So let's talk about this negotiation phase because this is where boundaries crash and collapse. This is where we, we had a clear goal, and now all of a sudden the goal's compromised. So... Give, give some input on this one because I've seen it work great up until the kids start to say, okay, I'll go, but. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we always, we always like to say you don't negotiate with a, a you know, um, with a terrorist. You know. <laughs> and, and the addiction is the terrorist. Oh, so, so. is you're, you're you're negotiating with a demon, a dragon, yeah. and yeah. it's not the child. No, yeah. no. so that there is no Brilliant. negotiation. It is more of. We as a family have learned what we've been doing to support your addiction, and we are now only gonna support your recovery. So it's okay if you choose to leave and go get high or do whatever you're planning on doing, but this is what we are gonna be doing moving forward. And then we put the line of consequences and boundaries into place, and we're completely transparent. We're not hiding anything. Well, you've been doing illegal drugs. So um, since you've been doing illegal drugs, we'll just have the courts have you have you arrested, get you in front of a judge, let the judge know this is how hard we've been trying as a family. These are the examples that we've tried to get you into recovery. You're not seeing it through the family's eyes. So we're asking you to for the judge to mandate treatment and the drug court program. Right. So you could do it through that program or you could do it this easy way that we have lined up for you to go away to treatment. So I'll give you a good example. There was this woman 
that at 15, the family knew something was wrong, right? The age that you deal with. Yeah. 15, they knew something was wrong. They went through treatment until she was 40, in and out of treatment for 25 years. Wow. 25 years. And the reason why she has been in and out of treatment is because, like you said, she went into treatment, she learned how to speak French or Spanish, and the family was speaking French the whole time. They never knew the difference. And this is what upsets me more than anything, and that's why we're different than a lot of treatment centers, is this family went to every one of those family programs that they have. They learned nothing, nothing in those family programs. And these are some reputable treatment centers. I mean, these families pretty wealthy. So here from 15 to 40, going through all these treatment centers. Finally, the family got this education that they're part of the problem. They've been speaking French while they need to learn how to speak Spanish. So they went out and got their help. And what I meant by getting their help is they started going to Al-Anon meetings. They started reading books about what they were doing wrong. And finally, they got to the point where they said, okay, because every time she relapsed, they came and they pampered her. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Let's get you to another treatment center. That treatment center didn't work, honey. You're right. And, um, uh. and then boom, 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 this re rotating door, this sick cycle. And not only for her, but for the whole family. The whole family suffering. Everyone suffering. So now that they said, okay, honey, we understand that we've been supporting your addiction. We've been on this roller coaster ride with you. Every time you leave treatment, within weeks you're drinking again, doing what you know, partying, doing your thing. We're done. So now, if you're gonna drink or do any drugs, we're gonna consider this your living funeral. We're saying goodbye to you right now. You put alcohol on your lips ever again, because she was an alcoholic. You put alcohol on your lips ever again, you will never see your family again. We can't go on this ride with you anymore. Living funeral. Living funeral. The husband that married her, he said, I just retired and I married you three years ago to enjoy my retirement. I didn't marry you to babysit you. Meanwhile, 25 years this has been going on in her life. He said, so if you're going to take a drink, start the divorce papers right there because we're getting divorced. I'm done with this. And she realized she had nothing without her family, emotionally, financially, you know, everything was about this family system. They always supported each other. And there was a homeless person that she saw right before she walked into this intervention. And because everybody that comes to our treatment center, she was a self-admit coming in from another treatment center, coming into ours, a self-admit. And uh, we, gave, we did an intervention on her. So everybody that comes into our program, we make sure the whole family gets an intervention. We educated them Got it. what they've been doing wrong. We, ed we taught them what to start doing right. So when she walked in there and she heard everybody saying that, she said, it's shocking because I had about, she had about, I think it was 60 days clean at that point. And she was sitting on the wall of the sober living because she was in our IOP. She's sitting on the wall of the sober living saying, I'm just going to go get one more drink. I'm just going to get a drink. The liquor store is right around the corner. I'm going to go get a drink. And the case manager went over to get her 
the coach or whatever, you know, sure. calling a case sure. manager, said, we need to talk to you. So she panicked thinking something happened to her father, you know, because he wasn't in, in too healthy at the time. She panicked because of that. It was her intervention. She comes in, everybody's sitting there. They're all like, she, go, she goes, I was this close to putting, to drinking just now before you picked me up. How do you, there is a, look, Brandon Novak talked about that his last time started with a restraining order from his mom. His mom had bought him a burial plot and his mom had said to him, I have prayed to God that he either kills you, heals you, or kills me because I can't do this anymore. And that was Love it. Love that. Right, right. Love and then, that. and and because the mom and Brandon's relationship had continued in this cycle through 13 rehabs, this one, you're right, he has nothing. But, and I, I, I have my parents, my, my audience voices in my head. Yeah. How do you do that with a 15-year-old? How do you cut a 15-year-old off? How do you cut a 17-year-old off? Because you can't, see, that's, that's my parent voice. Yep. Is it is that I have watched parents say, here is the teen homeless shelter's address. Yes. You can't live here if you do drugs. I love Period. that. I love that. And I, and I have a good example with that. You know, I wrote it down as we were been talking because I don't believe just because they're teens, adolescents, that you treat them. I, it drives me crazy where they pull them out of their house in the middle of the night and then they just take them to treatment. The tackle and drag transport. Oh my God. Yeah. I, it, uh, it's, it's creating more trauma. It's old school. <laughs> it's, it's, it doesn't it's, work. It doesn't work. Yeah. It's, cr it's criminal in yeah. my, in my view. So, you know, I believe no matter how old they are, you treat them as adults, you give them the option. So one of the options I did on an adolescent, I took the adolescent to, um, the adolescent ran. And I, we talked about this before your show, right? He ran while we were doing the intervention. And my biggest fear is that they're going to go out there and commit suicide, adult or, you know, adolescent. Right, right, right. That they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to end up in, you know, human trafficking, whatever the case may be. Right. So I called 911 immediately because I couldn't keep up with this kid. And I said, I think he's suicidal and he has a, uh, a, a knife with him. All of a sudden, helicopters, dogs, <laughs> everyone's out there looking for him. Because I knew I couldn't find him, right? right? They finally found him. He told the police, um, uh, they did an intervention on me, and I'm not going to treatment. I'm 16 years old. And the police said, you have rights. Absolutely. You shouldn't have to go to treatment. I can't believe your family's doing this. This is ridiculous. So they told us, you know, take him home and, you know, forget about it. And I was like... The mother just found him overdosed two days ago on opiates. So the next one may be his death. Right. So I need your badge number and your supervisor's badge number because when he dies, I want to let them know that the family did everything in their power to get you here. And you're saying he doesn't meet the criteria when he just overdosed and came back through Narcan. You're telling us with your expertise that he doesn't meet the criteria. I need somebody for the family to go back on. Yeah. 10 seconds later, he went to his car. All of a sudden, the supervisor's there. The pet <laughs> team's there. They take him to the psych ward. Of course they do. And it, oh. So the psych ward says the same thing. Doesn't meet criteria. Come get him. And I said, I'm recommending to the family. Well, first the woman's like, oh, I love the show. Can, you know, it's so good to talk to you. 
And she goes, can you get the family on the phone? I, I need them to come get the son because he doesn't meet criteria. And I said, no, I'm recommending that the family doesn't come get their son. And the woman's like, well, you don't know the law in this state. They have to come get him. And I said, I don't care what the law is and I don't care what state we're in. They're not coming to get him. They're, he's going to kill himself if he, they, if you, if he's out of your care. So she says, well, you have to come get him. I said, only if he admits to going to treatment. Wow. So she finally says, okay, he admits to going treatment. He didn't go. So when we got there, he says, no. So we got him re put back into the psych ward. They said, you have to come. They said, we could have the family arrested. You know, this is what they said at the psych ward for abandoning their child. And I said, perfect. Have the, have the police come arrest the family when the family's in front of a judge, the judge could hear their plea. They finally get the story. They finally yeah, get the story. Yeah. He's safe in your psych ward for the time being. But now the family could tell the judge what they're worried about and let the judge mandate treatment. Right. So at least we're in front of a judge. So I, for kids that are younger than 18 years old and you have a problem, there's laws to protect them. Like you said, let me give you the adolescent, you know, homeless shelter. Right. Let me get you locked up in a psych ward and get in front of a judge because I'm abandoning you. And then now let's see what the judge says. You know, what's amazing is that through this part of the conversation, it's become very clear to me that navigating this without a coach, without an interventionist, that this is where you've got someone who knows how to play this game because they've walked, they've, they've talked to cops. Maybe they got a cop uh, uh, on their call list that they can say, look, I'm doing an intervention on this street. So just so you know, if there's a run, I'll be calling you and the intervention's taking place at this time. Like, like there you've, the very first thing you guys said when we talked about setting up an intervention was review your resources. I, you said it in other words, but yep. that's what I wrote down. It's like they're they're saying, good, check your support system. What do you actually have to do this? Do you got a coach? Do you got a minister? Do you have a therapist? Do you have someone who can direct the process that's not you? And having a professional being the one to direct this process, they can get on the phone with a psychiatrist and say, I don't care what you think, you know, you're, you're the one who put them on Seroquel and they already have high serotonin. Yes. I'm not listening to you. You want to arrest the family, come send the cops yep. and we'll go talk to the judge and we'll see what happens next. And this is a tough game to play because we think that the hospitals and the police and all these people are going to be on our side. Yep. If we call and say, we're doing intervention, our kid ran and they say, well, running's not against the law. Yep. Uh, like where's, where's the help. And this is, this is why this is, and I think, um, you know, one of the things in terms of, um, I think that gives the intervention process some validity and, the, and interventionist, why they're important and why they should be part of the process is because uh, most families, when they call, they're in crisis, right? Something right, of awful course. has happened. It's, it's something awful after a hundred something awfuls. And they often say, he's not going to go because we've done everything. We've tried it. Yeah, of and, course. And the fact is, is... You know, and I think this is what makes Ken the interventionist he is. And back to your initial question is why do people seek him out? Why are they impressed? Is because he's very creative in thinking about how to conceptualize what someone's rock bottom might look like or what might be a motivator for them. Because that's really what we're talking about, right? Yeah. How do you externally motivate someone 
and keep them safe until such time as they find that internal motivation to change. And that's really what an intervention is. So you talk about those stages of change. Someone with a needle in their neck, their motivation is not to wake up and say, oh, I'm going to go to Betty Ford today. Right. It's because they've had some tragedy in their life, some discomfort, some feeling of, I can't do this anymore. So what we do is we work with the families, and, and the biggest part of the process is to identify what are those motivators? What are the five most important things? And then how do we operationalize that? So if the letters, so if the discussion doesn't, break down that wall and get them to make that change, that we have that kind of there to say, okay, well, this is how the family's changing today. And, and, and you're not going to feel comfortable using a mom's bed anymore. You're not going to be able to feel comfortable going to mom, getting $100, having her drive, buy your drugs, because that's over today. And that process starts to kind of like, whoa, it breaks through that denial. It breaks through that, uh, that voice that says, use, 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 and says, uh-oh. Maybe this isn't going to be good. Maybe maybe I should go to treatment. You know, you, while you while you both have been talking today, like I keep picturing, you know, the mom who's making chicken fingers in the microwave for the kid who's wasted out of his mind in the basement, mm-hmm. twenty eight years old, hasn't left, and stuff like that. And I remember Doctor Katie Parker, or fifteen, <laughs> or fifty, right? And and I remember Doctor Katie Parker who who did a show on enabling with me. She said, um, "All you're doing is giving them a comfortable place to die." Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's potent because n- no one says, I don't want my kid to die out on the streets. They're going to die in your basement mm-hmm. and you're just giving them a comfortable place to do it. Okay. So there's so much we know as, as we're wrapping around to the end here, there's so much that we know that we have to do about interventions, but there's one more piece that we need to address. It's a big mistake that's made and that's what to do when they say yes. Because that's the piece. Then all of a sudden they say, well, we'll start looking at some places mm-hmm. and we'll start to, <laughs> and oh, you yeah. both have just started laughing. So yeah. what's wrong with the scenario of, of you do this intervention, then they say yes, and then everybody starts the, the research. Yeah, it's exactly the reverse way to do it. I would never do an intervention unless you had treatment lined up uh, because the window between uh, yes and treatment has to be as small as possible. Now, when you say lined up, go to the extent of what you mean by lend up. You've got some ideas no, or they're, they are ready to see your kid walk through the door. They're ready to go. And as an interventionist, you partner with multiple treatment centers because we, we use three criteria. Uh, clinical fit, where's the best clinical fit for the client? Financial fit, how does it work with the family's resources, whether it's insurance, cash pay, or needs to be free, and then geographic fit. So we, as an intervention company, will present three options to a family that we think are good on all three levels. And sometimes you give a little bit of the financial piece up to better, better clinical fit. Sometimes you may think the ge- geographic fit is more important. So that kind of overrides, you know, kind of some of the other considerations. But you have to be do an assessment. You have to partner with the treatment center. The treatment center has to speak to the family to make sure that the client's appropriate. A bad treatment placement is worse than no treatment placement at all. So uh, being able to create a scenario where you know before you go on that intervention where you're going to treatment, then you can proceed with the intervention. I've done maybe like one intervention where we haven't had that lined up and it caused you know so much difficulty because we had gotten a yes and then we're waiting to figure out where to go and the person, you know, they're like, I'm not going anymore. And the that's first, a bad place to be. It is. The first intervention I ever participated in, not as the director, but as a participant, um, I was shocked at how fast things moved after yeah. after he said, okay, I'll go. They were out the door in five minutes. Yep. Yep. 
Yep. And I was like, whoa, like he didn't even get a chance to pack. They're like, the, the interventionist told us to pack for him. Yep. And you could hear him in the car. I don't have my boots, you know, and they're like, we can get it to you. We got to yep. go. There's a plane to catch. And I was like, wow, like it made sense. Yeah. No gap. They said, no yes, gap. do it. Because yep. they are going to change their minds yeah. a thousand yeah. times. A thousand times. And over the next year, they're going to change their minds about wanting to be in recovery a thousand times. And that's why that accountability, that aftercare, that support post Post complete wraparound is so critical. Yeah, and so many clinicians will be like, "Oh, they have to have their their input to get into it," and I'm like, "They just took a needle out of their neck. <laughs> they don't get a vote, and they, <laughs> right? And and they're gonna decide on you know because then I I started out doing them that way where people would be like, "Well, I need to make the decision," and I'd give them that little bit of rope, but then then they ran with it. And they don't make a decision. They change their mind. So the reality is, is you have to, you as the family need to do your investigative work and figure out which one you believe. Like we don't take everyone to, that we do interventions to our facility. We give them options. And we say, you guys decide on which ones. You make the decision, follow your gut. And they figure out which one they wanna take it, take their loved one to. And then we present that one and only choice. You cannot give an addict two choices because that's a loophole that they will f use to say, oh, I'm not ready because I like this one better than this one. And then they'll come up with all these stories in their head. And then they say, oh, yeah, I'm just not going to go. And we lose them. We lose, we lose that momentum. By giving them that choice. So... I, I disagree with the therapists that say they need to make that choice. Wow. They may be making horrible choices their whole life. Let them start making choices when they get 30, 60, 90 days clean and they're starting to, you know, see the light like we talk about, see the changes. But until then, they need the support of the family to make those choices. Yeah. Yeah, can talk about how, how families can, can get in touch with you guys. Um, well, we have different ways. We have our intervention company, which is intervention911.com. Then we have uh, Detox, which is kensealydetox.com. Um, and then we have uh, residential, kensealyrehab.com. Is your residential for 18 and up adults? Yeah, it's okay. only for adults, 18 okay. and up. And uh, a, a direct contact, an email, a Facebook page where, where people can... Continue to watch what you guys are doing. Yeah, you know, Ken Seeley, um, Facebook page. Um, then we also have, um, what else? So Twitter, Ken, under Ken Seeley, uh, Instagram, Ken Seeley 9. You got the big five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got them all. You got the big five. So, yeah, we do a lot of posting and a lot of training. I think the most important one is our trainings because treatment centers are learning now how to follow their clients and get reimbursed by insurance to follow them for a year to have that coach and so treatment centers are sponsoring our trainings and then individuals that want to get their feet wet and seeing that you know i'm in recovery and i really love helping people get into recovery so the beginning stages of learning how to you know get your feet wet in this industry is coming to an intervention training seeing if this is really for you do can you really handle working around them and I love our intervention trainings because there are five mods and I've done a lot of intervention trainings and ours aren't about intervening on the individual. It's about intervening on yourself. 
So we find a process addiction that you're working on and then case manage your process addiction to show you how hard it is for that addict that's just stop, stopping then. Wow. Like you said, I, I, <clears throat> I have 30 years clean off of drugs and alcohol, you know, from doing drugs every day. And that's easy for me right now with 30 years. Right. But dealing with my process addiction, my eating disorder, put a piece of sugar in front of me, a, a pot, piece of cake, I'm going to be like drooling like the addicts drooling for their heroin. You know, I'm exactly there. So I need the case manager to support me on not how to have that sugar. So our trainings help them identify what are their process addictions. I love one of them, which just a, um, a love addiction. Because people don't talk about love and no, sex addiction. No, they don't. They don't. And she was able to identify, you know, I'm so codependent. I need a, a, a male to fulfill me, to make me feel valid. And if it, you can always ask people, I had parents at a talk I was doing uh, at a high school in Colorado. Uh, parents started talking about their kid and video games, and I and I stopped them and I said, "If your kid was acting this way around pills, would you be concerned?" And they were like, "Well, God, yeah." And I was like, "Then be concerned, because it doesn't yep. matter." You know what? It, like you, I got kicked out of the party 22 years ago. Thank God. Yep. And uh, next thing you know, I'm in toxic relationships left, left and right. Yeah. It's like, oh, looks like I got a problem with women. And then, and then, then the next thing you know, I've got eating this, you know, body yes. dysmorphia and eating issues. And I'm like, oh shit, the problem's Aaron. Yeah. Like it's not yeah. drugs, it's not <laughs> women, it's Aaron. <laughs> that's a long therapy session. So Eric, Ken, thank you guys. What a great way to start today. Um, thank you so much. I'm gonna I'm gonna be following up with you guys. I'm gonna talk to our treatment center about uh, uh, these these certifications that you guys have. Um, Ken, thanks for being such an inspiration and and out there as a personality all these years doing this work publicly. It's a it's a big deal. You you you've you've helped to to kill to kill the secret. And if you, you can't kill the addiction until you kill the secret and, and you've bared like Brandon Novak, like, like these people that I get to be around, yeah. you bear your soul. I, I, we have no boundaries as addicts, like none whatsoever. And there's a good side of that too. Yep. You know, it's, it's not always healthy, but uh, it's a good side. So Eric McLaughlin, thank you. Ken Seeley, thank you both very much for being on beyond risk and back. Thank All you. Right, thanks. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, coming to you from the 32nd Annual CCSAD. That's the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. Thank you to C4 Events for having me here. I also want to thank Dylan at Deepin Productions. Dylan does my sound engineering. He also does the music for Beyond Risk and Back. So if you need to get in touch with Dylan, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. That's D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. If you've seen anything about Beyond Risk and Back on social media, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. To get in touch with Your Cause Consulting to handle your marketing needs, go to info at yourcauseconsulting.com and send them an email. Thanks so much for listening, parents. Remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. This has been Aaron Huey, and I will talk to you soon.